You're listening to the Manaverse Podcast, and this is session number 99. This is the podcast where we talk about the business of tabletop games, explore what it takes to make a local game store an elf business that means easy, lucrative, and fun. We believe that by learning new skills and strategies and working together, we can elevate the entire industry, make a greater impact on our local communities, and create profitable businesses that allow us to enjoy the hobbies and games that got us into the industry in the first place. PublisherGameNights.com is bringing retailers and publishers together to make hosting virtual game nights easier than ever. To get board game publishers to host game nights for your customers and staff, all you gotta do is go to PublisherGameNights.com and fill out your information, and publishers will begin reaching out to you to coordinate with you to make them happen. The service is free, doesn't cost you anything, and you can start creating fun and exciting events for your store that will help you sell more board games just by signing up. And if you are a publisher and you want to participate, just head to PublisherGameNights.com, the exact same place, scroll to the bottom of the page, and fill out your info, and you will get access right away. Alright everybody, welcome to another episode of the Metaverse Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Traplin, and I have with me one Kurt Covert. Coolest name ever. <laughs> Kurt is <laughs> the founder, creative force, and jack-of-all-trades at Smirk and Dagger. He's worn all the hats, including art director, copywriter, marketer, and concept director. And in a past life, he was also the creative director and marketing planner for promotion agencies servicing Fortune 500 companies like M&M's, Jameson, Danon, Unilever, Disney theme park eateries, and more. That's quite the resume yeah <laughs> welcome to the show hey well thanks so much uh i i appreciate you having me beautiful so we're going to talk a little bit about the business of publishing games mm-hmm. and we're going to talk about the business of selling those games right so first stop i always like to begin a little bit with the origin story about you know how you got to where you are so uh tell us a little bit about why you got into the game publishing business well um it was uh, originally without intent. I, obviously, I've, I've loved games, uh, you know, since I was a, a kid. Um, and I even helped a, a friend of mine develop one um, it, soon after I, I graduated college. But um, I, I just was building um, expansions for games that I love for me and my friends. And at one point, I spent about two years on the development of a dead game uh, just for the fan base. And... Um, Someone finally said, "Well, why don't you, why don't you just make your own game? You spend all this time and effort, you know, making these things look amazing. Just make a game." It's like, well, I'd never thought of it, and um, turned out it was much harder than I imagined. It was easier to build on someone's brilliance than start from scratch. Um, but yeah, uh, finally in 2002, I'd come up with a game called Hex Hex, uh, which I released a year later in 2003, and. I mean, there was no Kickstarter back then, so I ended up putting my house on a second mortgage in order to pay for that game, and luckily, I, I'm still here today. <laughs> well, I'm glad it worked out for you. Yeah. So, that, that's a quite a leap, going into that, and obviously, obviously, like you said, you put your house up, basically, as a bet towards making this thing work, so that's yeah. some confidence. Well, so I, I didn't go in completely blind. I talked to like anyone that would ever talk to me about it. Um, and um, I got a lot of great industry support from people who basically cautioned me off and said, don't do it. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but 
you know, like like anyone who's an entrepreneur and has a dream, I decided to move forward. Um, and, you know, uh, I pressure tested my first design out at Gen Con before I even had printed a game. I, I printed like 100 copies at Kinko's at that time, I think it was. And it was just Xeroxed on cardstock and uh, you had to assemble your own tokens. And But with that handmade game, I sold almost 100 at Gen Con with nothing more than a... Um, a card table and a small sign on it at a retailer's booth. And again, I moved a hundred of them with nothing but this handmade thing and, and no, no one knew who I was or, you know, it's, so I figured, well, if I could sell a good 75 of them this way, maybe I've actually got something. That's a fair point. So that, that, that shows the power of the minimally viable product, right? You got to, you got just what you needed to convey the value of what you're offering and the person people recognized it and took you up on it. Yeah. So that's a that's a very good way of opening things up in terms of, of starting a business. I do I appreciate that. I yeah. like that. So you took the leap and you you decided that, all right, I got this this game seems to be selling. Yeah. Let's make a thousand copies, right? Like it's or something oh, along those lines. Except I was really dumb. I made five thousand copies. Ooh. And I did so without any means of distribution. Um <laughs> and you filled up your house? Uh, well, I, I had a warehouse, um, but they delivered on on Halloween Day in 2003, and I was not going to be able to meet with distributors or anyone else until the next Gamma. So <laughs> that was uh, that was a little bit. Uh, yeah, there's something I didn't really think about up front too well, um, but I ended up through some miracle selling half of the print run to Spencer's Gifts at that time. Um, and they, I, I did a cold call. They never take cold calls, They, but they did this time, and it, I, I moved half the run, and then I quickly met um, uh, Aldo Igozi, uh, who, as you, as you may know, was Impressions, um, a consolidator, and he saw that I was, you know, new on the list for Gamma Trade Show, and he, he said, you know, that looks like a pretty cool product, you know, um, I can get you kind of fully distributed in one go if you just kind of, you know, sign on with me. And I said, Psh, absolutely, let's do it. So <laughs> here you go. <laughs> yeah. So that was, that was my, uh, my saving grace. Uh, the, the, those two things. Oh, okay. So how, what happened after that? After you had the big break, you got it, you made it, you, you printed your product, you did your, your, uh, your big leap as an entrepreneur. Yeah. How did it develop after that? Well, so very slowly because uh, I, I still had a, a very, a very time-consuming job. I was a, a creative director at a marketing agency. Um, I, I was making a six-figure salary, so I wasn't going to be going anywhere anytime soon. Um, and um, but I was doing this from like nine to midnight every night. Um, and I did one product a year. Uh, I had slow, very planned growth. Um, and for a long time, you know, I was I was satisfied. Just you know being out there getting my games out there um you know slowly and developing my name over time um eventually i started thinking about well you know maybe i should really make a go of this and go full time but that wasn't going to be really for 14 years um i i did this you know basically uh just i mean it was it was more than a hobby business but you know i didn't have to make my living doing it 
was the, mm -hmm. the critical factor. And then um, all of a sudden the marketing uh, jobs really dried up in Connecticut. Um, and I said, well, I think this is my pivot point. So uh, yeah, about four years ago or so, I, uh, I made the change. Uh, I expanded my line because I was serving a very niche audience, <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, and, and I've been able to uh, to support myself uh, doing it since. So it's it's always nice to hear that like it rolled out and it it's turned into something that's uh, you know a, a success. It's providing you with a a good lifestyle and a and a good life, and you get to do what you like. So that's always a good thing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's also interesting that you you stuck through it for so long basically this decades long progression of a side hustle and turning it into a full blown business that's a that's a lot of commitment to stick um, to for that long you know it's it's about passion i i think very few people get into this because it is a you know make money hand over fist i think that's you know the dream but it's not necessarily the reality and um uh I just love doing it. And I loved every aspect of it. I, you know, e even just like being at a convention and demoing my games or going to a retailer and, and showcasing them, you know, for people who are walking in, I, I absolutely love it. My very first game, I've probably demoed thousands of times, but it's still very fresh every time I do it because the people are always new and the reactions are, are just as invigorating when they're experiencing this game that than the first time. And that's what gets me up in the morning and, and doing it. I just, I love designing games, showing games, making them. Uh, so yeah, it's the, for whatever reason, this is just a, a perfect career for me. It reminds me of, uh, of a saying that, uh, I don't know if you've ever met John Coviello before, but yep. uh, he's owner of Little Shop of Magic and I've had him on the show a couple of times and he has a particular phrase that he likes to say uh, with regards to the game business. And it's, you know, if you want to make a million dollars, starting a game but you got to start with two right? yes that's you know it's a little <laughs> bit you don't get in for money you don't get in here for the money yeah it's for like you said the passion and the excitement and it's just the purpose of the gaming industry and, and what games do for life and what games mean to people and that kind of thing that's what sustains yeah so i can definitely appreciate that so interesting thought perhaps in the spirit of that and the fact that you know games are all about bringing people together I get the sense that Smirk and Dagger, uh, your theme is a little bit different. The, the yeah. angle of some of the games that you've got are maybe not so connecty and feel good all the time. It's a, there's a little bit of a mischief element underneath them all. Yeah, well, so uh, I, I think for, for people who know my brand and especially uh, where, where it started, um, I decided to, to plant my flag in a, in a kind of an unusual place. I took a page um, looking at... Uh, companies like cheap ass games and um, uh, games that are like really stood for something. Looney Labs, you know, they they've got a real vibe. You kind of know what you're getting into. And uh, as a marketer, I knew that if I was going to be a brand new company, I wanted to stand for something. I wanted to be known for something. And as I looked deep, the games that I absolutely loved more than anything else had a take that vibe to them. And that's because um, I really I really appreciate games where you get emotionally involved in the game, where you're on this emotional roller coaster of highs and lows, um, and take that games do that in a really interesting way, uh, as do Push Your Luck and some other things. Um, but um, I feel like that 
creates immersive experiences, memorable experiences, um, things where people, when they leave the table, they're not talking about how the dice fell, but what people, what the interactions were. And people will tell those stories about, you know, what you did to me at that time, you know, for, for, for ages. And I, I just think it's, it's wonderful. Plus, it's also a really interesting um, psychological dive, kind of a crucible for, for the human spirit, if you will. And um, watching the way people react when you give them the permission to be the bad guy. Um, mm. You know, it's, um, I mean, we sometimes we love to cheer on the villains in, in films. Um, and you, there's same kind of catharsis in, in getting to do the bad things in this controlled environment um, that is kind of, I don't know, it's, it's something unique. And um, now, obviously, it's not everyone's style. Um, and I knew that I was building a, a niche. But it's a niche where uh, the, the benefit of, you know, not necessarily appealing to everyone was that those that I did appeal to basically were fans for life and bought almost everything that I ever made. Um, and so while I wasn't broad, I was very deep. And, um, and that, that I think helped, helped me survive. Um, however, when I went uh, full time, I knew that that was not going to be a... A situation that I could maintain if I wanted to be, you know, uh, really, you know, doing everything for a living and making my living from it. So, um, so still true to the spirit that what I value in games, I still want my games to be emotionally involving, you know, narrative based. You know, I want the the pieces to fall away for the experience. And so, now rather than just kind of, you know, take that angst. I'm looking for all kinds of different emotional experiences that people can have. Uh, you know, we've got a heartwarming storytelling game. Um, we've got, you know, a game coming up where you're, you know, you're racing to, to save sea life from a, a gushing oil rig spill. I mean, there's all kinds of ways that you can really involve people emotionally in your game. And that's, that's what I love is, um, is making you feel like you're almost in a movie. That's how immersed you get. I like it. It's an interesting angle for sure. And I can, I can, again, I appreciate the, uh, the different take on gaming. And like you said, put your flag into something. Maybe this is what I stand for. This is the theme that we're going for. Uh, obviously going for a niche is not necessarily a bad thing, right? Choosing a particular style of gaming. And that's what you're going to represent uh, is a good way to get known for something. And it's a good place to kind of like set up a foundation to build on. So, uh, it makes a lot of sense to go that route. Just the, I thought that, maybe not contradiction, but the juxtaposition between, uh, you know, stabbing somebody in the back <laughs> in a board game, which, you know, as fun as it can be, uh, versus the, uh, the, the, like, human emotional connection that usually comes from, from a, an immersive board game kind of experience. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting, too, because um, one of the things that can happen, even with that kind of backstabbing and betrayal, um, is that... Having gone through it, you know, none of the games, um, you ha you enter into a social contract when you play one of my games, uh, that, that's kind of backstabby and take that, um, you know, it's going to happen to you. Um, so you have to understand there's like give and take. This is, you tell everyone up front, this is the kind of game it is. Terrible things are going to happen. You're going to perpetrate some and you're going to take some and everyone agrees. Yep. Cool. That's what we're doing. Um, 
And yeah, there may be a couple of rough feelings and shaking of fists and cursing in your name. But what ends up, the bonding that happens is almost like a band of brothers in a war. You've lived through something. <laughs> And and I I think that's kind of the bonding experience that actually happens. Um, and again, people will will talk about the games um, well after uh, the game gets put away um, because they were real social experiences that that people had. Definitely, I've had my fair share of gaming experiences that have gone on to become almost shaping the narrative of your life in some regard. Like <laughs> it becomes part of like the friendship that you have with somebody yeah. in some cases, right? It's just this turn or turning point in your life together, which is kind of weird that you can have this one shared experience over, you know, some cardboard and some, some playing tokens or something like that, Truly, yeah. but it can definitely happen. So it's a, I like the idea that you're making games that kind of create that experience. That's the focus is you're trying to kind of make that happen for people you know, on the tabletop uh, so that they can have that kind of relationship. Yeah. I do. I like that. I like that a lot. So I guess an interesting point then is who kind or who are you making these games for? Who is your niche? What kind of people are you trying to, uh, trying to introduce? Well, so one of the things that um, this area of gaming, uh, you know, connects well for um, are, are casual and new gamers in particular. Uh, a, a lot of new gamers, um, you know, if they were going to kind of sit down and play like everyone's favorite Euro, uh, you know, there's a lot of deep rules to absorb. There's, you know, uh, you know um, just going through the rule book alone can be a little daunting. Um, and for a lot of people who, you know, when they when you first say board games to them and they their minds instantly go to like, you know, the very broad market games we all grew up with, um, you know, they're still thinking about roll and move. Um, and having this kind of very immersive experience in a board game, uh, where they, they really get pulled in and they are they get connected with their emotions. It really welcomes them to a different style of what board games can be. So, um, I tend my games to kind of be, you know, mid-weight or a little bit less. Um, I, I like them to be, you know, almost gateway. Um, some of them are a little bit deeper, some less so, but um, I, I like to be very welcoming and broad with my titles um, so that you can get into the game quickly. You can have this great experience and really, you know, still long for more. Um, and so, yeah, I while certainly it's going to appeal to, um, you know, really established gamers as well, um, you know, less so for people who just absolutely love pure, pure strategy, you know, you know, clean Euro design. Mine, mine is a little bit different, um, you know, uh, maybe a palette cleanser, perhaps, uh, or some of them are short enough where they can be, you know, great um, games to get you into the evening. Uh, but um, uh, but I, th I think casual gamers are probably where where my core is. The visual in my head was the idea of the uh, very low learning curve. So like, you know, make easy to get into, easy to adopt. Somebody could just walk in and use, you know, just like tic-tac-toe. Very simple, easy rules. Maybe tic-tac-toe is not the greatest example. Probably not, yeah. The idea of like, well, you know, <laughs> it's super easy. A three-year-old can handle it. You, you can figure it out. But then the idea is, you know, you have this like level of, of skill that keeps going. And like the longer you play it, the better you get. And, you know, mastery is very, very far away. But you can keep it going so that people who are, you know, they're interested and they want to play that game, you can get better. But it just it just takes time. But you're also not going to be so much better that the new the person who's new to the game will be completely blown out and can't possibly compete with you. 
like other other games that uh, kind of have that you know like chess i guess chess is a good example for yeah. you know the rules are relatively simple but if you're a grandmaster at chess you know there's no beginning chess player who's probably ever going to beat you right? it's just you're almost statistically impossible to defeat a grandmaster if you're just getting started yeah so the idea of of kind of making it so that it's approachable from both ends uh, makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and I think it's true of my games too that uh, while uh, you know certainly I always you know I, I love to win. Um, my philosophy is I love to play. I love the experience. So uh, mm. a lot of my games you know kind of feel that way too. Um, it's um, it's not that they're you know it's not that none of them are skill based, but I think they're just generally more experience based um it's it's living the movie and hopefully it it works out for me but i i feel just as good having lived through that experience than if i didn't win so you know if that if that's that always makes a good sense. place to end up yeah where you win or lose you end up having a good time that's always a good aspect for a game that's a yeah. that's definitely something you want to aim for so good stuff so we're gonna kind of segue sort of into the yeah. later half of the of the conversation so we did want to talk about the retail end of things yeah and one of the big things that uh, that you do that your company does is that you provide a lot of retail support you give retailers a lot of a lot of resources and uh and things that they can use to and further their goals of you know selling the selling those games so what kind of stuff do you provide to retailers that uh, maybe other publishers don't well, I, I think a lot of good publishers do, um, and it's a matter of sometimes just you know where do you go to to find the stuff. Um, so we we have uh, marketing packages that we release through PSI that goes out to the distributors that are available, but they're still a little bit hard to find that way. So what we did is we created a. Um, a retailer resource page on our website. And whether you go to smirkandagger.com or smirkandlaughter.com, it'll be at the very bottom of the page. There's a, a, a clickable button that'll take you right there. Um, but um, some of the things that we, that we offer, uh, we've got, for example, listed on that page, our current stock at the warehouse. Uh, just a, a note of whether we have the game in stock or not, because very often when you go to a distributor's website, you may see a zero listed for a particular game, and it may not reflect what the publisher actually has because the system can, can lag uh, for, for various reasons, uh, you know, whether, whether they've made a recent order, if it's shipping over to them, that sort of thing. Um, so we always like to have a place where people can go and say, oh, this is why I can't find it because it's actually out of stock, or no, there are more. So let me see if I can get them. Um, the other thing is um, we do have uh, a way to, uh, to sign up as a retailer um, you know, directly with us in case uh, people are interested in doing uh, direct sales. Uh, so there's an order form and we've got a catalog there. Um, we also have a newsletter sign up. Um, but importantly, we have these marketing kits and that's true of all the games for the past three, four years. Um, in that downloadable uh, nugget, you've got box and game photos. Uh, you've got all the art and logo assets in case you want to make something for yourself. Um, there's always a sell sheet, which has all the details and selling points for the game. Um, we've got Facebook ads, uh, graphics that are ready to kind of post on social. Um, and we've even got uh, demo scripts. Um, these are specifically demo scripts for a short 
overview uh, by a retailer. And what we did is we obviously when we were when we're at shows, we do a whole bunch of different um, demos. We've got a, a, a five second, a 30 second, a two minute, a five minute. And what we did is we kind of took the two to three minute pitch for our game and we condensed it in a script form telling you exactly what pieces to set out what cards to have ready um what to kind of point at and say these kind of top line things so we're not necessarily trying to teach people the game we're trying to give the broad concepts because we know that retailers don't have time necessarily to kind of play through or teach someone the game, but you want to give them just a little bit of flavor so they can really kind of experience what's cool about the game. And that's what we provided in these demo scripts. I love the idea of, of helping uh, retailers kind of along the selling process of showing them the finer points. This is the things that your customers are going to care about. So I definitely like the idea of here, like, here are the key points. This is all you need to know in order to sell this game. Yeah, uh, definitely, definitely good stuff. So um, and then some of the other things that uh, we've got too, um, we have a, um, a private uh, Facebook retailer group as well, um, which uh, it's, it's kind of connected to our Smirk and Dagger Facebook page. Um, and I, we can get you a link for that as well. But the, um, I just, I don't spam that, but whenever we have important news that retailers will care about, um, that's where I, I message first. Um, we also have a retailer-based newsletter, um, but the the Facebook group is is where I I, I put a, just a little bit more um, you know timely information. Um, sure, and we'll make sure those course, links get in the show notes. Yep, and then um, we also um, we always offer demo copies of our games, and I think that's really important to a lot of retailers. Uh, very often. Um, I'll deliver those uh, in person, uh, either at a show or if I'm stopping by a store, which I, I try to do as often as I can. Uh, the other thing is that um, uh, if someone ends up putting in a, an order direct with us, it's very easy to put an extra demo copy in, in the box and, and send that out as well. So, um, but uh, demos, whether they just are displayed whether they're overviewed, whether they're part of a, uh, a retailer's board game library, demos sell games. So we, we like to, to support retailers by providing those tools. Absolutely. So what would you say to stores who don't have the manpower or the time to commit to like making a demo or to putting up a demo table? Well, yeah, and that's that's something that I've I've heard occasionally. Uh, though I think I think you know there's been a lot of discussion uh, of of late uh, about you know what constitutes a demo, and I think the like I said earlier, it's about scalability. Um, you can do a a pretty decent demo, and you can you can do a great back of the box demo, overviewing what you know about the game. You can do a two minute if it's on top of a, a table, just covering the 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 top lines um or people want to go a little deeper and and that that person has the uh the wherewithal yeah you know you can you can take it a little bit deeper if the, if uh if that person has taken the time to actually understand or maybe has already played the game um, i've got a retailer near me that um uh, assigns a game a week to to their to their staff just you know here's a game go learn it so that you can talk about it. And then, by the way, tell everyone else what, you know, some of the cool things about it. Um, and I thought that was a really interesting way of doing that, kind of spreading it out amongst uh, the staff. Um, but the other thing is that, you know, there's also live 
versus like social post demos. So yeah, if you don't have time necessarily, you know, if you've only got one or two people working in the store, you know, doing a, a demo of a game might be a little burdensome. But if you've got someone who's already doing social for your store, especially now with COVID, you know, we've had to have a lot more outreach to our consumer bases. So now you could actually do that demo on on a on a social and send it right to you know the people who are going to be shopping your store um and you know maybe even tie that to like a special that you might run on the game uh but um another thing of course is uh uh, uh with you guys at over at the metaverse uh, there are a roster of companies that are now doing online demos so um mm -hmm. you can even you know have uh i'm, I'm one of the one of the uh, companies that signed up to say, yeah, we'd love to do demos for your staff or your your customer base. Um, so we'll set we'll set something up and we'll actually go on Tabletop Simulator and invite your uh, your staff or your consumers in and play the demo there. And uh, and again, they can then go right to the store and uh, and, you know, buy a copy. Um, the yeah. other thing to oh, go ahead. No, I'm just I'm just thinking like the idea of you know getting the game into the players' hands and, and getting them the experience is the easiest way to say to get them to want it to to convey that value to show them that this is a game that you will like you should buy it and the, usually that experience is enough for them to say yeah you're right I will buy it yeah. so the idea of you know having the the demo and I, I really like the suggestion of just kind of uh, kind of doing that at scale by putting that on your social media like it, it, the demo. You know, as great as it is to have a face-to-face -face interaction with somebody, it's kind of challenging these days. But that doesn't mean that, you know, it's it's impossible to have that same experience or at least a similar experience, you know, on a Facebook Live or something like that. You set up a camera, you know, if a lot of uh, stores have the equipment at this point these days. Uh, you know, set up the board, set up the camera, have a couple people sit down, you know, you and your employees when you have, when you have an opportunity and just talk about it. And like I said, like you said, you could easily make an offer on the video right there to be like, hey, you know, this is the new game that we just got in, and it's great, and these are the reasons why it's great. You should check it out. And if you click here, boom, you can go straight to the shopping cart, and you can pick it up on our website, and we've, you know, we get 10% off, whatever you want to do, right? Whatever special offer you want to make for the first X number of people or whatever. Yeah. You know, all kinds of ways that you could approach it, but you could leverage your social media so much more effectively. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And, of course, once we get back into kind of the – the business that we all know and love when everyone is you know in our stores and spending some time um the other thing is that uh, for people who don't have a lot of staff to dedicate uh to to demos um certainly you know you'll know which which folks in your store you know are interested in showing off games and just love doing it um you can always kind of lean into them but also um from an organized point of view you can also tap into envoy um now, Envoy is a, a third-party national demo team, um, and they have uh, people who train on all of our board games. And, you know, the companies become members of, of Envoy. So we're paying for, uh, for people to learn and go out and show our games. And it doesn't cost retailers anything. But you can, through Envoy, um, either uh, bring a, a train Envoy person in or actually have one of your staff members become an Envoy person uh, and then get, get uh, 
all the the, you know, the the training, the game, you know, all of that uh, from them. Uh, importantly, they also do splash events, and this is um, something they do when a new product launches. And so they'll work with a you know a publisher, and they'll say, "Hey, all right, you've got uh, the Night Cage coming out uh, around uh, Halloween. We want to do a big Halloween event, um, so um, we're gonna." have our envoys that we got like 120 people who are ready to go out there and show the game and they're going to approach their retailers or the retailers will hear about it and say oh yeah you know what i'll sign up i'll put one of my guys make them an envoy and be part of this and it becomes a a, a big um one day event uh in your store um or maybe it's the weekend um so uh, that's another great way to create some some buzz and get some some demos in the store without necessarily having to uh to pull in your own manpower envoy can provide it yeah i like it it's funny because when you mentioned that you were the second person that day to to mention that to me oh and i've never heard of it before and i hadn't, hadn't encountered them before so now i've got somebody somebody else to uh to pay attention to and to and see what's going on and see if maybe we can work something out. So it's very exciting. I do like the idea of having this team of people that go around over uh, the, uh, I guess, the nation and kind of help retailers by demoing. I like I like the connections that they're they're building along those lines. So yeah, very cool they, program. They had they had started um, uh, kind of dedicated to um, conventions and showcasing games at conventions. And um, I was one of kind of the, the, the first companies in and I said, hey, listen, I, I think we really need to have a, a retail program um, and it's got to it's got to make sense for retailers. It can't be burdensome on them. Um, and uh, and then we also talked about how to get, you know, like, you know, the focus of splash events and um, and we coordinate um, making sure uh, games uh, stores have access to those games as w so they can, you know, make use of that uh demo to actually turn volume and so that was you know something that was very much thought of with retailers in mind um and uh and hopefully that's something that uh you know folks out there can start taking advantage of links will be in the show notes for somebody who wants to do a little bit of research or uh connect with the the, the program and see what they can do for them yeah. uh yeah all of that uh, there, yeah there's one other thing i thought of uh too um we've just started um working with Dized. Have you, have you heard of Dized? It's funny. I was going to mention Dized. Ah, <laughs> they, okay. were on the they were on the show uh, three episodes ago. Oh, so that's I gonna, right. Yeah. I was going to link them up. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah, so um, we have, um, we've now made uh, two uh, tutorial apps with Dized, uh, one for Shobu and one for the Night Cage thus far. Um, and uh, for those who have not heard about Dized, uh, Dized is, it's almost like having a demo person at the table with you. Um, it's not watching a how-to video. It's a play the... interactive tutorial. Yeah, so you you hit go and you, you open the box and it walks you through setup and through the an entire game um, as though someone was you know doing that in a, in a demo space with you. Um, so you can get right into the game. Now this is great for board game libraries. You know if if you put a little shelf mm -hmm. talk and say or you, know, you just say hey these games have dized apps. They can just go right to the internet and take down the game and start playing, which is pretty darn cool. Um, it's also great for game cafes uh, or anywhere you just want to jump right into a game. Um, the other thing that I have, uh, I have found and I'm hoping is that it will help reduce the barrier to entry 
for new gamers or even gift buyers. You know, uh, mm. some some folks who just come into your store who are not gamers themselves, but they have someone in their life that they know likes games, but they they're they don't really know what what's a, a good game, or maybe they're concerned. Oh, are we going to be able to learn this game? Well, something like Dized, you can say, hey, well, you know, this will walk you right through. Oh, well, that takes some of the burden off. And, and therefore, you can buy with more confidence. And I think that is kind of a, an untapped potential for what, uh, what Dyes can, can offer. I agree. I really like what Dyes is bringing to the table, physically and metaphorically. I like what's going on over there. They, the idea of marrying you know, some of the best aspects of like, what makes a video game good, what makes a, a video game good for new players, uh, because you know, obviously the video game, most video games these days don't come with a big rule book that you have to learn. You learn on the fly. That's the whole idea. You can just pick it up, start the game, and then the game will tell you what you need to do when you need to learn it. And it'll walk you into the game so that you can become proficient at it and enjoy the process while you're at it. And from what I've seen, Dyes replicates that really well for tabletop games. So I really love the fact that they brought those two things together. And it seems like as more publishers start, uh, you know, publishing their own version of the app, their own uh, tutorials on the app, it's only going to get better and more valuable for people uh, for both ends for retailers who want to show off and, and showcase a game and, and allow, uh, you know, customers kind of get a taste before they, they jump in. Yeah. Uh, but also for gamers, right? Like just somebody Absolutely. who's like, I just picked up a new game. Does it have the thing that'll show, show me how to play the game and my friends? So I don't have to spend 20 minutes reading this rule book before we can even open the box. Exactly. Uh, like it's all good. All good around. So yeah. Well, actually the other really cool thing, um, even for like, you know, gamers who are you know you know uh, just died in the wool gamers that you know the the rule book is their precious thing and they they wouldn't part with it if they if they <laughs> if they could um they now have an interactive um rule book as well so you can just go on and either like click right to the section that you need or you can do a keyword search um you know in shobu you know um pushing and it'll show you all the different areas in the rule book that will deal with pushing a stone. And so you just click on those things. So it's there's a lot of really interesting things going on with dice that I think are once it really starts, you know, getting some momentum, it's gonna just it's gonna really just kind of blossom. Yeah, it's gonna blow up. I yeah. think they've got a lot of potential. So one of the things that uh, I did want to talk about why I had you was merchandising. Merchandising, we all know how important that is to selling a game, how how important it can be to just have uh, a game, you know, at like eye level in a well-lit space and like certain just simple things like that. Uh, that can be a big difference in how well a certain portion of your store sells. Like it may not even be the product sometimes. It could be literally just the shelf that you have it on. Absolutely. So merchandising yeah. is very important. So uh, what advice do you have for stores who are, uh, you know, they want to, how can they merchandise their uh, their stores more effectively well so i i i won't pretend uh, i've never been a retailer so um so what my perspective comes from my my years my 20 years as a a marketer of consumer products for for some some big big companies um so um one of the things that um merchandising and marketing um and building a customer base they all kind of there it's a it's a fluid uh you know a spectrum of of tools um that can really can really help uh 
you know, move volume and build the base. And one of the first things, and I think, um, I, I'm sure most retailers uh, do this. Um, and first of all, just knowing and identifying your customers and identifying the growth markets. And we know that, you know, yeah, it's less about demographics. This is all about psychographics. Um, and in our case, sometimes it's it's specifically on, you know, what games are people about? So some people are just, they're CCG, you know, collectible card players. They're board gamers or war gamers, role-playing, comics, collectibles, like, you know, and you segment your stores, you know, to, to actually, you know, uh, people know where to go in your store to find the things that they're looking for. Um, but um, I think there's also um, a way to start, you know, making sure you're, you're merchandising and marketing and speaking to the types of consumers that you have in your store. Um, and so that can range from, you know, alpha gamers, casual gamers, brand new gamers, family gamers, and like I said before, gift buyers. Um, you know, they all come into your store with like a different perspective, different barriers, different things they're, they're looking for. Um, and some are, um, are potentially um, under marketed to or under merchandise to uh, potentially, uh, depending on, on what your store is like. So um, Kylie over at uh, Games Unlimited, I think he's been a guest on your show as well. Yes, yes. Um, at uh, at GTS this year, he did this great presentation, which I, I popped in, and um, he was talking all about how you know you shouldn't go and chase board gamers, the alpha gamers. You should really try to make new gamers because those people are going to be the people who are not going to be swayed by you know trying to find the best price on Amazon, like you know because they're coming to you for a slightly different reason. So, you know, alpha gamers, they already know what they want. They just want to know if you have it at a competitive price, right? Um, they're the great white whale, but, you know, they tend to go online to bargain shop or, or to, to pre-order so they don't miss that one, you know, hotness that they, they really want, you know, and uh, they do buy more, but on average, uh, on average they, they may not necessarily be buying from that store. So, uh, but one of the things that's interesting about alpha gamers is that some are more collectors than players. Uh, they hunt the hotness so often that uh, their games tend to feel staler sooner, which means they eventually start thinking about culling some of their collection uh, that for those, you know, that, that didn't make the cut, right? Um, so th there's an idea of like the board game exchange. And this is something that I know uh, Travis over at Millennium Games does. He, he buys used board games um and he he does not go ahead and check all the parts to make sure they're there it's, so it's not a drain on his staff um but what he do is he gives them store credit which they go and buy they, they they use to buy new product in his store which is brilliant so yes they're gonna they're gonna take some of the some of their stuff uh uh, and it's it creates a buying pattern in the in the store at the same time then he can sell those used copies um and um it's kind of a win-win and i i know it's a program that's done extremely uh well for him but it keeps it keeps alpha gamers uh in the store and and buying products and that's great um so then you know it's all about then promoting the fact that you have 
you know, this solution and it solves a problem for them. They've got all these, these games. Ah, I'm not sure I'm really using those games. Um, market that. And you can do that through social. You can, you know, create signage. There's all kinds of ways to, to merchandise. Once you have that use board game area to, to really uh, merchandise and market that. Um, on the other hand, there's um, board game enthusiasts. You know, just they buy a decent amount. They they love the community of the store, and they actually love supporting you. Um, they they're pretty open to your recommendations for new games. They come to trust you. Uh, they come to board game nights. I mean, they're truly solid customers. They're they're, they're really kind of your core customer. Um, one of the things that um, that I have noticed, uh, even in one or two of the stores, uh, you know, closer to me. You kind of have to make sure they also feel the love. And what I mean by that is, you know, it's very easy, especially in your event schedule, to get all swept up in the collectible events. Um, and um, I know uh, one of the stores near me, you know, we, we had um, a dedicated board game night. Um, and then it kept on bleeding in magic um, or taking up tables for role-playing and things like that. And eventually the board gamers stopped coming because they were getting edged out. Um, so you just want to make sure you've got a dedicated night. And um, for that for that kind of customer, you know, and this is true of, you know, no matter why they come in your store, you know, things that, you know, make them feel like store members, I think, are is a great way to to market and connect with those people so whether that's perks or a discount program um you know whether you've got a coffee machine and they, they have access to it when they're you know in playing or whatever it is um just making feel making they they feel like they've got a home and a dedicated time that's really just for them and their interests um and i think uh it's typically the the war gamers and ccg folks that tend to because those events, you know, are so pervasive and, you know, that's what really drives that group in. Um, just make sure you don't lose your board gamers in the process. That's good advice. That's yep. good advice. Cause I have a distinct experience along those lines where, uh, it is kind of funny how different types of gamers kind of become, uh, clicky in a sense. Oh, They're sure. Not, oh, you know, I'm the magic players and those are the, those are the Warhammer players over there and they, they can stay over there. You know, like those guys are, those guys are weird. Like it's always like this odd, <laughs> we all kind of like live in their own hub, their own ecosystem. But I've, I've seen that before in stores where, you know, you've have the, although the other type of player, whatever happens to be kind of encroaching on the space and you kind of yeah. have this, it, it sort of, like you said, it, it edges you out. It pushes you out in the sense that you kind of, yeah, maybe, you know, maybe this isn't for me. Maybe they're focusing on those people right now. We're not your, you just get the impression. Maybe you're not as important, right? Maybe they don't, they, maybe the store isn't really trying to cater to you right now. And that, that's not a good feeling for somebody who's coming to, you know, spend money in a business. So yeah, I yeah. do like the idea of like, if you got a night that's for board games and for board gamers and board game families and people to come, you know, like a board game demo or, or some, some sort, if that's what you're doing, then like do that and then yeah. make that the focus. Don't let, uh, don't let the other, you know, other gamer subsection subgroups kind of like come in and, and, uh, take over the place and, and make the, make the people feel potentially unwanted. Yeah. Well, and along those lines, um, you know, you talk about kind of the, the spectrum now to, you know, casual gamers, new gamers, family gamers, or even the gift buyers. Um, you know, you can almost, you know, clump them because they're, 
they're fairly new to the hobby in many cases, um, or even just outside of the hobby, but, you know, curious. Uh, because a lot, we're talking about board games a lot more in the culture now. Ten years ago, people looked at you, you know, with a side eye when you started talking about board games. Um, now people are like, ooh, I've heard about this. Tell me more, right? So um, so the whole whole thing there is, and I'm, this is not a surprise to anybody, but it's a, it's a matter of making them feel welcome. And that is, you know, sometimes there are, you know, it's it's about greeting them when they come in. It's about um, how how the store is decorated. It's about you're up front of the store. Um, anything that you know, you walk in, you're like, oh yeah, okay, I feel okay in here. Um, that's really important for welcoming people new to the hobby in. Um, and of course, obviously, providing guidance and expertise. I mean, that's why they're coming to the store. You know, anyone can go and buy a game online, but the benefit of coming into the store is is that expertise and you know especially if, I, if i'm kind of new i i walk in and it's just it's overload right so how can you help me confront that so first of all yeah you can lower the barriers by staging more familiar games in the upfront um you can um you know uh stage different styles of games uh just for like um for new gamers like you know whether it's the style of the game so it's, it's more like party style or price point or just easy to learn games there can be really a whole section where you're up at the front that brings those new folks in and makes them feel comfortable and anything you can do to give them confidence to make a purchase uh, whether that's a recommendation or that kind of thing terrific social i mean talk to that specific audience about um you know go on and and do uh you know five minutes on, hey, you've heard about board game nights, how do you make them fun, right? And you know, you really start creating the idea of, oh, great, there's this thing I, I know about, I've heard about, and now I, I wanna engage more with it, and these guys can help me get there. That's that's a lot of it, so. Um, yeah, absolutely. It's yeah. a challenge sometimes. Oh, I no question. One of, the, one of the big obstacles for somebody who's been in the business forever is you have the, you know, the, the expert perspective for the most part, like you've, you've been saturated in gaming for so long that you, you are used to it. It's just part of who you are and, yeah. you know, part of your life to pull back and be like, okay, do you remember what it's like when you didn't know what the board games, oh, yeah. board game world was like? Can you imagine that perspective for somebody who's just, who's never been into a, in a board game store, never, never come into that world and walking in there for the first time and just be seeing like 10,000 games on the shelf of different colors and shapes and sizes and just yep. complete overwhelm, right? You know, how can you help them ease into it, right? Because uh, a confused customer doesn't buy, right? So Correct. Yeah. So the idea of like going back to the beginner's mind, right? That's a, it's a challenge and it's something we all have to, to work on if we want to be able to speak to them in a way that actually helps. Yeah. And very often it's about just making, I mean, you're certainly going to be talking direct to those people who are very involved in CCGs and war games. Like, you know, talking specifically to your audience, like it's, it's always better if you're going to do a, uh, an email blast, it'd be better to segment your email blasts by interest base. So they know that anytime you, they get one, it's talking directly to them about something they care about. So if mm -hmm. you can break up your list into people you know are just there for war games and there for CCGs, you probably have more bang for your buck on opens. Um, but mm -hmm. in general, um, 
when I whenever I, I looked at a, a marketing challenge for a client, um, I always looked uh, at some point to borrow brilliance from others, from other industries, from other companies. You know, there are ways that people have tack it, tackled uh, marketing and merchandising in the past. And what what can we learn from how other industries do things and bring it into what we do? And suddenly it's an innovation. Um, so, for example, um, and I'm just going to riff on a couple of things. So um, ideas from a bookstore. Now, I think a lot of people uh, have looked at bookstores as a, as a means of, uh, you know, thinking about merchandising. So some of these will not be too surprising. But um, table talk um, or shelf talk, they're, you know, the, the, the little cards and whether it's just a staff recommendation which personalizes the experience. So now they, they, they feel like they're connecting more with the staff who they already are going to for advice, but now they see, you know, all right, you know, Tiffany says, this is a great game, you know, um, and I love it because, um, or you might have, you know, if you liked game, 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 try this. Um, because now it gives people an understanding. Oh, okay. Uh, I, I know I love that game. This is something I need to try. Um, or, of course, you can always do like, you know, bestseller kind of lists, you know, uh, for, for things that are, you know, really popular. Uh, that is not necessarily important for your died in the wool gamers, but newer gamers, casual gamers, they will find that a valuable resource. So think about the depth of people who come into the store. Um, another thing that bookstores do pretty well is they do themed or seasonal features. So tables that are about Halloween. Here are some, you know, great games and uh, collectible figures and other things for Halloween. Um, or it's it's a dungeon crawl table. Here are five games all about dungeon crawls. Or this is the movie, so you've got Jaws and you've got The Thing and, you know, whatever else. Um, but that's, one, it's going to be a, a way to, you know, anything that's been on the shelf that, you know, even if it's been, you know, uh, a couple months sitting out there, you reposition it, you put a feature on it, all of a sudden it creates a new reason to pay attention, a new reason to care, and a new reason to want and buy it. Um, uh, you can even do things like that are just pure gift ideas. And this is, you know, this is more for, you know, even non-gamers, you know, dads and grads. Here's some great things that dad's going to love. Or it's Valentine's. Here are some great two-player games. You know, so... Any of those kind of things are great ways to merchandise and sell games and give people a reason to buy that they didn't have or weren't thinking about when they first walked in. And that's key. So Merchandise is framing. Indeed, yeah. You're, you're giving the, the product a new frame, a new shine. You're like, this is a, another angle that you can approach it at. I like that. Yeah. All right. So let's, uh, let's jump somewhere else. Uh, liquor store. Okay. So what can we learn from a liquor store? Um... So one of the things that liquor stores do is they do have demos. They do have like, you know, tastes and things like that sometimes. Um, this is uh, about the instant immersive counter demo. What do I mean by that? Um, take a game like Stringamajig, okay? Um, which is a great fun game and it's super simple to teach. Um, so someone comes up to your counter and you're like, hey, um, you know, as, as you're, you know, talking with them, you know, here, take this card. See, see if I can guess um, what's on this card. Go ahead and try to make it with this string. So, I mean, without even knowing the rules, you can kind of like get them to manipulate the string and create the image, and they can have an experience with the game. 
you might have just sold a game. Or it code names, and you just put six cards on the table, and you give them a clue of like, you know, okay, find the ones that are connected by, you know, this. Now, you don't have to even talk about the full game. You're just like instantly dropping them into a situation, and they got the spirit of the game. And that's a sale. So uh, another thing liquor stores do, um, again, they do shelf talk. Uh, so if you think about wine, they've got quotes from reviewers. So what are, what are the reviewers saying? You know, and we actually offer some of those shelf talkers in, in our marketing kit, like where we've, we've called some of the, the interesting quotes on our games and, and put them on. Uh, or uh, awards. Awards are not so much important to, uh, to dyed in the wool gamers, but the more casual and new, it gives them more confidence in buying if they see that it's got awards or even a BGG rating. So, um, man, there's so many. Uh, car dealerships. What can we learn from car dealerships? Uh, test drive, right? So a test drive is how you experience the products at a car dealership. Um, Lynn from the game board uh, has a program that I know she does where... Um, it's kind of like a, a rental program. Um, so you can rent a game for X, have the experience home, play the game, and then you either return it, um, in which case it gets rented out again, or you keep it and you pay the balance or some, some portion of the, the, the balance. And um, you've just, you've, you've got a taste. It was a, a, you know, you're making a little money on the rental, but hopefully you're making the sale on the game as well. Um, and I think if I recall correctly, she has a very high take rate. Yes. Like very I, I, few people will take the game home, play the game, experience the game, and then be like, yeah, it wasn't for me. Exactly. Like, are, they're going to buy that game. It's very, yeah. very high conversion rate. Yeah. Um, uh, another thing is kind of uh, at a car dealership, um, it's, uh, the cars are on showcase, right? So as you're walking through the showroom, you're, you're just kind of browsing, right? So, you know, here's where, like, even an unmanned game set up on a table um, can give you an experience. Um, there was a retailer I saw, I think in Connecticut, um, they actually had um, a, a chalkboard set up for, uh, for a number of their games that they, they wanted to push that, that month. And they would, they would swap them out. And when they pulled out the, car, the, the chalkboard, the game was already set up, they put it out, and it just kind of had a bunch of the pieces arranged on the table with written chalk that said, you know, um, draw two cards then attack like you know and like they would actually write on the chalkboard and give you like you could read the chalkboard and get a sense for what the game was was like and i thought that was that was pretty cool uh they they did x-wing that way and i was like this is gorgeous i love the way you've done this <laughs> um uh, for that same thing you could even just put like a, a a little shelf card which gives kind of the overview of what the game is about just like from the back of the box even and but then now they're actually looking at the components so arranged in a nice appealing attractive way you yeah. know to emphasize the action and the coolness or whatever the case happens to be with the uh, particular pieces yeah yeah the showcase right yeah um oh how about best buy so what do you th what do you think i'm going to say about best buy mm, i don't know all right geek squad yes exactly right the geek squad <laughs> So imagine what the Geek Squad was, right? They, they had people on the floor you could go with any question. Well, game gurus. Now, obviously, you've got people who are experts on games in your store. Celebrate them, right? Mark them 
put colored shirts on them, buttons, whatever it is. So people know when they see that person, oh, I can go and ask them a question about this game. And they are likely going to know it or they'll like go and find out for you, right? So then you can market them on social, have them do posts about, you know, show, showcasing their expertise and maybe do unboxings or whatever. Um, be the store with the experts, promote it, right? Um, that's really all they did at Best Buy was they promoted their experts and it made them more of a destination when you wanted to know more about products. Um, you know, or obviously if, you know, Walmart, Home Depot, like they had like, you know, the idea of greeters, you know, sometimes roving, um, when, you know, unfortunately, and I think it's changing now, but you know, I remember a day when, you know, you'd walk into a game store and it might be a while before you, anyone even said hello to you. Um, and obviously, uh, you know, you know, let them walk in, get comfortable, but then find out why they're here, you know, and ask them the, you know, the, the three questions that are going to help you tailor, you know, direct them to where they can, they can go offer them the, you know, three suggestions and, you know, showcase three things, you know, but, um, but yeah, being that expert and really showcasing that and, and trumpeting it is a powerful, powerful way um, to increase sales, uh, broaden your reputation and increase your, your customer base, I think too. Um, for some places you can even go to something like an experience like monster golf, escape rooms, you know, that kind of thing, you know, where you become a destination for activities. Uh, now this isn't right for everybody because not everyone has like the space or special rooms and that kind of thing but i have definitely seen uh some stores who have you know rooms for birthday party events you know or, or uh or it's a corporate event day and, and they they come in uh or it's a private room to rent for your D, &D group or board gaming and it becomes part of the membership perk to to reserve those rooms but those are other things you can borrow from you know different types of businesses. And if it works with yours, great. But I think one of the other things that we often forget is that we are part of the communities that we actually uh, live in and work in. So um, there are ways to reach out and find new people and introduce them to the, the broader concept of gaming. Uh, so a community fair, um, if, if you had, you know, a handful of games, pick five, doesn't matter. And mostly what you're doing is educating on what great new stuff, you know, board gaming is all about these days. You can direct them to your store, say, hey, you know, if you're looking for to, to create a new board game night, it's amazing. Like here, you're really talking to new gamers and gift buyers, right? And you can start building a new clientele by some of these uh, outreach, or you're creating sidewalk events and you can radio, radio promote some of these things. Um, so anything that's gonna help get the word out to a broader audience, that's where you know, you're gonna start growing your base. So just some things that you can borrow brilliance from what others, what others have done in different industries. I like it, I like it a lot. <laughs> I think the idea of going outside of of the game business and the game trade and then looking to see what's working in other industries and seeing what you can take and apply to your own. That makes a lot of sense. And I think we can get a little bit uh, tunnel vision sometimes and, and focus maybe too much on, uh, you know, looking at what everyone else is doing instead of whatever, what everyone, everyone else is doing and what may be working for them. Uh, yeah. So 
I, I really like the idea of the uh, the experts and having like maybe the idea of being like I'm the RPG guy. You know, I've got the RPG shirt and the RPG buttons, and these are the things that I love. And you know, I'd love to talk about them with you. And like, I like the idea of having different uh, like branded uniforms for each particular expert that you've got. Like, that's the guy you want to talk. He's the board game guy. Go 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 talk to him. Yeah, or her, and whatever the case may be. Like, I love that. I think that's a really good idea. Good idea of you're really showing like the. I really believe that these people know what know what they're doing. They can help you, and I want to feature them as employees, as people who are part of the team. I think that's a great way to do it. Yeah, and obviously, all of those ideas, you know, just kind of flotsam and jetsam. Like they're they're inspirations. They're not going to work for every store and every every you know uh, person. But um, what I do encourage is the next time you are out in the world, take a look for some of these inspirations and see which ones feel like real opportunities for your store. And I think that's what it's really all about. It's it's about looking at different industries and bringing the, the best of what works elsewhere into your store. You got to look for it, though. That's the key. You yeah. have to be on the prowl because generally speaking, we only see what we're kind of kind of looking for. If we're aiming for picking up our groceries and we just want to get in and out, you know, you're not going to notice the great lighting or the really cool display tables or yeah. something like that, right? Depending That's on, so true. Uh, yeah. Wherever you are. So the idea of going out and, and purposefully, consciously being like, I want to find new things to take back to my business is always a good mindset to have. Yeah. Especially, and again, follow up to that is going outside of your store. That's also very important. The <laughs> idea of going outside of your business. You know, don't spend all day there. You know, See what you can do. Connect with other people in the community. Find out what everyone else is, uh, like what are their community centers, what other programs and fairs and events and things that are happening in the local community. What else can you do to make yourself more, you know, part of that? Yeah. Get and get, just get your name out there, whatever you can do for that. That I think uh, is a good piece of advice for pretty much any, any retailer. So quick, quick follow up to everything we just talked about while we were discussing it. I thought of the question, how often should people be re-merchandising? How often should somebody be rearranging their store and kind of making things new? Um, I think that really depends um, on, on the answer is uh, as much as you can, because if someone walks in and it feels like there's something new um, and it might just be the way you arrange things on the shelves, it can make a difference. It makes the experience a new one. And um, that causes people to pay more attention and to actually shop more. So, but your ability to do so, um, you know, that's that's kind of the the factor. Um, yeah. So, it's not a more, small undertaking, depending right. on, on how but, big uh, floor space you're talking about and what your what kind of uh, merch you're moving around. Yeah, but even again, just by having a couple focus tables, right? If if you if you decide mm. to change those out every week, every time someone walks in, they feel like, oh, what's this? It's that sense of discovery that is the spark that gets people talking, asking you about products, all of that puts them in a shopping headspace. And that's what you mm -hmm. want. When, if they just walk in and they walk right back all your products to the, to the tables where they're going to meet their friends, that's not the objective, right? Yeah. You, you want them to be in a shopping mindset. So you've got to, you got to break down all those things that feel too familiar and merchandising is the best way to do it. My quick thoughts on the idea would be that I think once a week is probably a good good target to aim for. 
uh, because every time you do update something, as long as you you know are consistent with it, and you're constantly updating at least part of the story. You're constantly moving something around and, and re refeaturing or reemphasizing things. You're giving them a reason to come back because there's always going to be something a little bit different. Yeah. Right. You're 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 going to always have this person be like, I wonder what it's going to look like next time. You know, I wonder what new game is going to be on the table. Like you said, the focus table. Yeah. Uh, but uh, one of the things that I remember from experiences years and years ago uh, with a retail location inside of a mall was that you don't have to rearrange the entire store. Right. Sometimes yeah. all you have to do is the front windows. Just, you know, swap out some of the games, swap out some of the pieces or whatever, you know, uh, advertising or marketing posters or just, you know, refresh it once a week. That's all you got to do. And that yeah. might be enough to to make it feel new, to give you, to bring those people in and kind of, like you said, put them into the shopping mindset so that, you know, they're, they're on the prowl for like, well, what's new? Right. What, exactly. What's happening here? I like it. All right. So... This is a slightly different angle. Mm. So as a game publisher, what is one thing you wish retailers knew or would do differently? I think it was not greatly publicized. I think some, some people have, have found out, but it's still not well known, I think. Back in 2019, uh, distributors changed how they order games. And what you've seen is it's harder to find the games that you're looking for at a distributor. Um, they're more often, you know, out of them. And it's because they are, they've had to change their stocking practices because of the sheer volume of games that were getting released every year. Um, they were just, they were too exposed. So I understand exactly why they got there, but what they did was they ended up changing how they ordered based on the number of pre-orders that retailers made uh, prior to launch. Now, for a lot of companies, that didn't really make a a big difference because um, you know if if you didn't jump on their games and pre-order them, you might you might not get them or you might be allocated just a little bit. Um, but for uh, for some companies like the medi medium and, and smaller companies. Um, there's usually never a, a rush to, you know, I'm not going to sell out necessarily of, of most of the games, you know, at at launch, or at least I hadn't historically. Um, so I don't typically get pre-orders and some other companies, you know, you know, get far, far less as well. And why? Because the pre-order system is kind of stacked against retailers. Every, you know, we all understand that. But the difference is that now, if you don't, place a pre-order, the distributor is not going to be stocking it. And I almost went out of business in 2019 because um, I didn't have enough pre-orders. Uh, Menace Among Us came out in the fall and one of the distributors had 12 copies at launch. Um, which of course sold out immediately, but then they didn't reorder it because they only moved 12 copies. So cycle right there. Yeah. So um, it's really important for retailers to know how important those pre-orders now are, especially for medium and smaller companies, if you want to see them in distribution. Um, I don't think it's been well uh, well documented or talked about. I talked to every distributor I could when I was you know uh, facing this and ended up changing the way I go to business. So, uh, for example, I had to go to a flooring model with Alliance and anyone else who would take me. But right now it's just Alliance, so that they would constantly have stock of my games. 
And therefore, Alliance is much more likely to, to have my games available than anyone else because because of that arrangement. Now, I'm, I'm doing having that discussion with the ECD um, and uh, PhD as well. But right now, those those have not been you know figured out. So I've actually moved to uh, a lot of retailers are, are doing direct orders with me more than ever, uh, just because either there, there's outages and people are, you know, just, retailers are finding that to, to get the some of the games they want, they, they, they have to seek them out at the, the various publishers. Um, so certainly uh, we have we have arrangements to do that as well. Um, they're very friendly arrangements. Um, and um, so just be aware that that situation exists and it may be why you can't find the game that you thought was launching this week. Um, now, of course, right now it's probably <laughs> probably logistics and shipping that's holding those games back. But um, uh, but as we go forward, I don't think uh, with the amount of games that are being made every year, I don't think distributors are likely to change their policies, and therefore you still may see that uh, in in the marketplace. Uh, but the other thing I just want everyone to know is that every publisher we want to be your partner. Uh, we love special requests. We love event ideas, uh, special merchandising concepts. If you've got an idea that you want to run your store uh, and we can help you at all, just know almost any publisher will jump over themselves to do that. Um, especially, you know, if it comes with a, a direct order, it open, open up, uh, op opens up margin on our end to provide even more for you. So let's talk about those ideas and, uh, and create a, a program for your store. What can stores do to maybe alleviate some of that pre-order issue what could do what can they do to get more pre-orders or or kind of help uh, help distributors understand like what the kind of games that they're looking for um, Is you can do well again i think i think what distributors are waiting for is to actually see retail pre-orders come in if you let them you know yeah hey listen give me a case of those or whatever um they'll at least know to stock the game um with without doing that and, and again, this this is really more important for um, for mid and smaller companies that uh, if you don't pre-order from from those companies, they may no longer stock those games. Um, there's just so uh, sadly, I, it doesn't really change any of the the issues that I I know can happen uh, for retailers regarding pre-orders, which is why they they tend you know not to like to do them unless they have to, but in some cases, it's really going to be the only way that those games actually uh, become available. Uh, and oh. and again, failing that, um, if 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 you if you flipped through uh, the trade magazine and you were excited about bringing a certain game into your store, and you can't seem to find it, contact the publisher. You know, yeah, maybe it's stuck in the port, or maybe you know it sh it's it should be available in distribution. And I've got a warehouse full of them that I can't get out and I'm happy to work with you. So um, it's it's really, it, the supply chain is changing mm -hmm. and we all kind of have to kind of catch up to the, the new ways of doing business. Fascinating. That's definitely something that I'm sure probably a lot of retailers didn't realize, but that makes a lot of sense now that we have kind of explored the, uh, the, the nuances of it. Yeah. Like, of course, things are, have changed drastically in the last year and a bit you know, for a variety of reasons, but just the explosion of gaming has actually caused its own set of problems. Yeah. 
Yeah, obviously, there's no retailer that can carry every release in a year. You've got to be choiceful. Yeah, 10,000 games at Yeah, a time. It's, a, it's impossible. Um, and finally, distributors realized the same thing. They can't take every single game. So they're also being choiceful, and the way that they're making their choices is, what did you guys order? Simple as that. I think the takeaway from that is reach out to the publishers. I think that's a good takeaway regardless of the issues with distribution. It's just get into a relationship with your publishers. The, the games that you want to trade in, find out you know who makes them, go talk to them, and they will probably be more than happy to help you uh, figure out ways to sell those games. Yeah. So if anything you can do to kind of make those relationships happen and kind of get more connected with the people who are supplying you, that's a great way to move forward and, um, I guess, make sure that you have what you want on in stock when you need it. Well, we've, we've been on for a lot longer than I expected, but that's great. I always like it when things go a little bit longer than, than uh, anticipated initially. It's usually a good sign. Uh, I do want to wrap up with one final question, yeah. which is something that I usually ask everybody who's a guest on the show. Because the general theme that we're trying to explore is, you know, success. What is what yeah. does success look like for you? And that's essentially what I want to ask. I want to find out what oh. does success mean for you with oh. regard to, you know, your games, your your publishing company. Well, it's interesting. Uh, I I am probably an equal blend of optimist and realist. Um, uh, but my optim optimism is kind of eternal. So my first answer is, regardless of the popularity of my games or the amount of volume I push, I already feel that I am successful. It's been an 18-year journey, but I have, I have gotten to live my dream. I'm doing what I'm passionate about. I care what I'm working on, which is different mm -hmm. than a one, you know, you're just working a, you know, a dollar a day job, right? It's, it's meaningful what I do. And that's success to me. What would I like my company to be able to achieve? I would, I'd love to have one of the, the big mega hits that, you know, is forever stocked by every store. Uh, I haven't necessarily had one yet. Shobu is probably uh, one of the things that just, you know, is on track to start doing that. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd love to have a, a few more titles now that I'm, I'm no longer serving as tight a niche that are broad-based enough that people really know them and respect them and are able to sell them with ease and... Um, uh, so maybe it gets just a little bit easier, <laughs> but, uh, but no, I, I, my vision of success is, is largely fulfilled and now it's just a matter of, can I crank it up just a little bit? Yeah. You know, you already feel good about what you're doing. You already got the passion and the purpose, you know, a little fame and fortune on top of that wouldn't we'll be take too bad. It. <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't be too bad. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's a great place to wrap up the episode. Thank you very much for coming on and, oh, and sharing your, your thoughts and your wisdom and your, your knowledge and expertise. Definitely appreciate it, and I, I hope the listeners appreciate it as well. All right. Thanks so much. All right. We'll talk to everybody again in the next episode. All right. Thanks for listening to today's interview with Kurt Covert from Smirk and Dagger Games. Check out Smirk and Dagger at smirkanddagger.com as well as smirkandlaughter.com. And until next time, until the next 100th episode of the Manaverse Podcast. My name is Tom Trappin, and I've been your host 
Thank you for listening, and I will see you in the next episode of the Metaverse Podcast. <laughs>